Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by David Bollier. David is an American activist, scholar, and blogger who is focused on the commons as a new paradigm for reimagining economics, politics, and culture. He pursues this work as director of the Reinventing the Commons program at the Schumacher Center for a New Economics and as a co-founder of the Common Strategies Group, an international advocacy project. He's also the recent author of the Commoners Catalog for Changemaking, and that's where we're going to be spending most of our time. But David, I'm really excited to have you on the deep dive. How are you? It's great to be with you. We've kind of already chatted about this a little bit before I hit the record button and had some jokes. I have a lot of stuff that I want to get through. But as they say, start at the beginning, right? So. I want to give you an opportunity to share how and why you've come to focus your career, focus your life works on the commons. Well, you know, in some ways, there was some invisible force pulling me there. Uh, I suppose the origin story would be that I, I got my start in my 20s working in Washington public interest community, uh, Ralph Nader especially. And in retrospect, I could see that a lot of the work I was doing there was exploring what I would now call enclosures of the commons, Uh, basically the commodification and marketization of our shared wealth, whether it's public lands or the airwaves or uh, federal research or whatever. But then in the late 90s, when I became increasingly disenchanted with conventional politics, party politics and the rest, I fell in with a group of refugees from Washington policy that world. And we started a small, the Tomales Bay Institute to essentially develop a discourse of the commons outside of the conventional ideological spectrum to talk about our shared wealth and how it's being appropriated, taken over and how we're being dispossessed. And this is not just a physical or resource dispossession. It's a personal cultural dispossession. And the more I got into this, the more I realized that this is a pervasive phenomenon of our time. And it's not just about us being victimized. It's about the creative alternatives that are being built around the idea of the commons. And I fell in with a lot of Europeans uh, who are more politically and intellectually advanced than we Americans on this topic and uh, was nourished by my association with them, especially ones in Germany. And uh, I sort of have become a, a utility scholar, activist, networker, strategist, promoter, blogger, podcast host uh, about the commons. And there's lots of, for me, in this rather dismal time of COVID and climate change and political implosion, I can actually say with sincerity that I'm optimistic because there's so much going on that it escapes mainstream attention, but there's so many positive creative alternatives based on the commons ideas that there's reason to be hopeful. You know, I want to like go a little further into that, you know, because 
the commons is a, and as it points out in the book, it's a huge swath of different worlds and, and spaces all coming together. So the commons is not just one thing. It is a, a connected, complex ecosystem of things. But as you said, there is a, let's call it a more mainstream discourse. And then there is the discourse happening within these complex ecosystems. So I want to give you an opportunity to make a point of differentiation between those two realities. And then I want to get into imagination capture, which is something that I've been really thinking about a lot and writing about. But first, those two realities. Well, the, the mainstream discourse is all about how the market and the state are the only two meaningful, significant uh, ways of talking about life and progress. And I call it the market-state system. You could call it capitalist modernity, where you have these um, mythologies of progress through technology and innovation and corporate behavior and market exchange. And I've above all, individualism and consumerism. Whereas the commons is about basically bottom-up self-organization and governance to meet your needs, the way open source hackers decided to create their own software rather than relying on Microsoft or Silicon Valley. And so it has all what you create and organize is for your needs, not for sale in the market, not for profit. And therefore it has an authenticity and a lack of alienation. It's very, it's a very joyful process. It's a satisfying process. And it's basically a reclaiming of sovereignty of yourself and your political identity in the face of a, of a market state culture that is constantly preying upon you or dispossessing you or alienating you in some fashion. And as a former uh, liberal activist, I found I just couldn't take the liberal narrative seriously anymore as a as a vehicle for transformation. And now that climate change is breathing down our necks, we'll come to the real test of whether that can provide the transformative vision that we need. And I, I don't think it can. So I see the 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 commons, and then a lot of associated system change movements like degrowth and cooperatives and transition towns and peer production as holding the keys for a different kind of society that'll get us through the difficult times ahead. You know, I, I try not to go into the optimism versus not optimistic term, right? Like, even though I, I think we all think in those terms, but I try not to ask like people and talk to like, are you, are you not, you know, because I, I feel like it's sort of like a, a trap right? Because I get this all the time, like, you know, I'll kind of spend time talking to people about real challenges and they'll be like, well, net, net, are you positive? You know, like they kind of want the Hollywood ending. Everybody's like, got a hustle they need to promote, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what I want to dive into a little bit is the, even beyond the market state that you described and the opportunity for the commons do you view that there's also in the common space competition, maybe that's not the right word, but there is a, a commons that lives in the, in the true spirit of what that means. And then there's a commons that is 
co-opted to be a little bit closer to that market state of reality. Because you make a point in the book that the commons is not a resource. And oftentimes when I'm when I see like UN development and you know these kind of big places. So I'm not considered my mention of the UN a proxy for like big developmental quasi-government things. The commons is often thought of as like a resource. Well, that's uh, an artifact of market economics, which they regarded as an unowned or potentially shareable resource. And that's where the whole tragedy of the commons parable by Garrett Hardin, a famous 1968 essay came from, because he posited that, well, if you're a rational individual who has this pasture that your sheep are on, no one will have a rational incentive to hold back. And so you'll overexploit the resource, the shared resource, and destroy it, the tragedy of the commons. But that was really more describing the tragedy of the market in which there's no community, no rules, no monitoring for how uh, people use the shared resource and so forth. And so really the commons has to be understood as a social system uh, that is self-created without generally the the rudiments of the state or market, Uh, even though, of course, we're all immersed in that system and have to find ways to interact with it in ways that allow us to maintain our autonomy and integrity and not being taken over by enclosure. Uh, So it's a difficult proposition, but uh, it's one reason why the commons vary so much. There's a a term we often use is the pluriverse of commons, because, you know, obviously a forest managed in India will be different from one in New England or one in Africa, because there's different geographies, there's just different histories, different traditions. And so context matters. And there's not a universal grid or inventory of commons. It can come up anywhere. And I'm always astonished to encounter new types of commons in theater, performance theater troops or humanitarian hacker groups. It's basically whenever a community of people get together and say, we want to do something of shared interest with fairness, participation, equity, and a larger purpose in mind, they serve their own needs, but they also tend to have a lot of positive, what economists would call positive externalities of what they uh, are performing because they don't have an interest uh, that's totally parochial and selfish. They, yes, they have their personal needs to meet, but they also have a larger collective interest they're trying to advance. So this is playing out around the world in lots of different arenas. You could say it's the ancient default social mode of humanity which has been maybe displaced or interrupted by the past 200 years of industrial capitalism. In that industrial capitalism, the market state, it is such a pervasive like way in which the world operates, right? And it's adaptable system in the sense that we are in it, but we often don't feel it you know, but we feel it, right? Like we, it's, it's swimming around, we're swimming in it. So like I said, I, I spent a, a lot of time around this imagination capture, right? That our imaginations are captured by innovation, so-called innovation that can only make itself known through this market system, right? So how do we shift 
our imaginations into other viable futures that engage the commons in a way that is not market-based? Well, simply by creating a commons, you start to open up those possibilities because you don't immediately have all the overhead of a market, the business models, the expenses. And that's precisely what a few hackers did when they said, I don't like the fact that this operating system is proprietary and I can't tinker with it. I'm going to create Linux. And of course, that grew over time and became a significant computer operating system. And it was only because the con that basically commoning, it's a verb, not just a, a noun, uh, that commoning allowed them to think and work in creative ways that business models or proprietary companies wouldn't let them do. So that's why, in, in a strange way, companies and markets are more dependent upon the commons uh, than they acknowledge as a kind of non-market input uh, or something that they can colonize and co-opt. The creativity of street fashion, for example, the way the fashion houses rip that off, the uh, social cooperation that people have, uh, social media, which is then monetized for your attention for advertisers, you know, and on and on. So the commons is really about reclaiming that socially created value or ecological value to make it persist and be sustainable instead of it simply being an input for the corporate machine. Now, your book, the Commoners Catalog for Changemaking. It has such an incredible wealth of, of resources and information that, you know, really connects this ecosystem. You know, it, it speaks about commoning through water, through financial systems, through computing and through agriculture and, and so on and so on. You know, why did you think that this is the moment where this type of cataloging is necessary? Well, that's a good question because I, for a long time, have thought, how do we popularize a concept that seems arcane or archaic or so sprawling because it represents a different worldview and has so many manifestations? How do you popularize that? And I, had, as a kid, was bowled over by the Whole Earth Catalog and how it exposed me to all these so-called countercultural phenomena of back to the land and so forth that simply had no representation in mainstream media, newspapers, TV. And it was like a portal to a different world. And I was thinking that the commons from my own personal travels is everywhere. I've seen dozens of different projects, yet they're always treated, if they're treated at all, as weird-ass um, aberrations something on the margin, something that doesn't have systemic potential or dimensions. Uh, and then I, there was a, uh, a slogan by a, a Belgian designer in which he said, the next big thing is going to be a lot of small things. And I said, ding, there's all these small things that are either former victims of market enclosure or creative transcending of it by creating their own autonomous commons. And we see that in the various topic themes that you just mentioned of agriculture, water, digital, and so on. And I wanted to sort of bring the dot, connect the dots, bring them together and show that there's a kinship despite them seemingly being different or the way that they're usually interpreted as, oh, well, that's a nonprofit or, oh, that's a charity or that's traditional or indigenous behavior. Uh, in fact, as a human social system, they have a deep kinship 
of mutual aid and, pro and provisioning, of collaboration, of attention to fairness, of independence from the state and, and top-down structures. So that's the Commoners Catalog for Change Making is my early attempt to try to do this. I could have made it two or three times longer. There's enough examples. Uh, but the idea, it's important just to get the idea out there and to give links and references to where people can learn more. It's an incredible resource. You know, I've I've downloaded a couple of of the books that were that were recommended and and wrote down some some titles to review and and check out. So you've given someone already buried in in books and reading material more books and reading material. Sorry um, about that. Exactly, much <laughs> to the chagrin of everyone who lives around me. So you know, this is opening up an entire Pandora's box can of worms. But it it gets me to this idea of learning. Right, that we're we're constantly in a state of learning, but we're also faced with the duality of unlearning at the same time. So, how do we manage this process of learning new things while also unlearning so many of the things that have been part of how we look out and and, and view the world around us? Well, it's part of the challenge of holding two different worldviews simultaneously in your RAM memory and entertaining both. And sort of, it's not as if one is false or falsifiable, but it's, I think, an archaic artifact of a different era of human history. And uh, we're coming into a consciousness of alternatives. I, I wrote a book in 2014 called Think Like a Commoner that attempted to sort of sketch what this logic and social ethic and set of social practices was all about and how it contrasted from the norms of market capitalism that we barely think about, which, oh, I'm just an individual and, and yes, I'm selling my labor in the marketplace. And this whole structure that has accrued over 200 years or more about how we are socially situated, what the order is, what the ideal end goals should be for our activity in life's lives. Uh, the common sort of transposes that and puts it in a different frame. And it, it, I have found it personally liberating because we, we all know the stresses and strains of trying to live within a, a capital, advanced capitalist market systems, especially as technology becomes so pervasive and some of these uh, big tech norms for engineering our lives are profoundly destructive. So for me, I found the commons as a, uh, what shall I say, a life raft or a clearing in the forest for starting to think anew and try to recover some, what I think are the deeper patterns of human behavior uh, in terms of social association and getting things done and meeting needs. Uh, so it, it's less that the commons is some sort of universal prescriptive thing or ideology. It's more that it's a space and discourse for people to rediscover each other and renegotiate how we're going to live together. And that discovery, that that emergent process, um, there were a couple of lines like you, you referenced very early on, um, someone like Arundhati Roy, who I always refer to as my one of my intellectual superheroes, right? And you you used a line or a series of lines 
from her that I, I end every presentation that I do, almost every presentation, but pretty much with this same line, right? That, you know, there, a new world is on her way. You know, if we listen, we can hear her breathing and, you know, I'm paraphrasing. And you you make a connection to that concept of breath and breathing and feeling something deeper. And then obviously over the past couple of years, we've seen the reaction to the murder of George Floyd, right? Where again, breath is brought into being in that. And even before him, Eric Garner, you know, the same thing in New York, I can't breathe, right? So how do we connect these concepts of connecting our living breath to what is emerging out of all of these movements and, and possibilities? Like, you know, you have Arundhati Roy, you have Black Lives Matter, all of these things are kind of linking. How do we pull those things together? Well, that's a, a great question in the sense that I think it's about rediscovering our, our authentic humanity and trying to get beyond some of the, let's just say, frankly, contrived social categories that our history or state power has imposed on us. And I think uh, it's really trying to escape some of these ideological beliefs of, about ourselves and certainly uh, many of the racialist categorizations of us. And I think this even extends internationally, not just in the U.S. context, but you know, we're an integrated world and humanity is an integrated species with an unprecedented survival challenge. You know, let's get beyond some of these artificial divisions. And I think that's why positioning the commons as outside of the market state is so critical because it gives us the space to have these real conversations we need to have. And I think, you know, we can't just petition the state to rectify these things. We have to show the way ourselves because the state has never been, let's just say, an ethical leader or pioneer. It's been the people who forced the state to adopt certain things. Now, the beauty of the commons is not just an ideological proposition or a posture. They're real projects for getting stuff done. And I think the process of being in that forces you into positions of relationality and negotiating that, communicating, uh, finding workable ways for things to happen. And uh, I think that's where we need to start and uh, start to re-encounter each other and have start to re-encounter the earth as a living system, not just as an inert resource. And I, that too is part of this challenge is putting relationality at the front. There was a quote that I use in the book by uh, uh, culture uh, historian of cultures, Thomas Berry, who says, the world is not an inventory of objects, it's a communion of subjects. That's what it's all about. It's re-encountering living systems. The title of the previous book I did was on the commons was called Free, Fair, and Alive. Let's, let's confront this as we're alive with agency, with creativity, with capacities for cooperation and put that at the centerpiece as opposed to dead ideologies that, uh, you know, maybe miss the point or, or are secondary. And the dead ideologies are are all around us, right? Like, you know, I've, I've written, you know, I'm, I'm tired of the, you know, as much as capitalism is this pervasive thing, any critique of capitalism becomes just now you're 
in the Marx world and you got to have that debate. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm not in my, you know, freshman economic theory class, right? Like it feels like I'm relitigating that term paper that I wrote in like 1991. Like, let's just move on from, from some of that, but we're trapped in this duality, right? It has to be one or the other to whatever degree. And now you're just debating like the, the ground, that battleground. Right. And I think, frankly, we don't have the political movements or institutions we need to move this forward. The, certainly not the political parties, but even the prominent nonprofit organizations, they're managing their brand identity and franchise. They're speaking to their peer groups and funders. They're locked into the system as well. So finding new political identities that can express our commonalities, that's, I think, part of what this is all about. Well, people often say, well, but we can't scale the commons. They're too small. And my response is we emulate and federate, and that can get a big footprint without having the centralized, hierarchical, ideologically driven approaches. In other words, honor things at their appropriate scale and give them a functional capacity at that scale, but then federate. And we've seen this in all sorts of open source and internet uh, communities that are working transnationally. And they have that kind of practical, appropriate scale for what they're doing, as opposed to some distant uh, hierarchy di dictating what they're doing. So, you know, I, I kind of admit that the commons is uh, on the fringe of con contemporary mainstream discourse, but I think it's really more in the human condition to uh, assert this. And I think it, it has the power that a flower coming up through the sidewalk is uh, has. <laughs> Rose who grew in the concrete, right? Tupac. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. And kind of taking that a, a step further in terms of the ground in which we are like having conversations. Like right now it feels very Verdun, very, we're at the Somme, we're in our trenches and we know never the two shall, shall pass in terms of like the mainstream conversations. Whereas I always look at this world and say that there's an opportunity to have a, a bigger conversation, but we are still dealing with some of the past, right? And and this is kind of now where I, I want to go, right? And we started to touch on it, but I want to go as the hence the name of the show, want to go a little deeper on that. We do have divisions, right? And and those divisions, um, whether they're around racial lines or gender lines, many of them are exacerbated and have and have been born from a racialized capitalist system that seeks to take advantage of those types of divisions, right? And we can have the, you know, race is a social construct conversation. Yeah, okay, that's true, <laughs> right? So there's a lot of these things swimming around. And, and this is what I'm trying to get at here. So there's a question coming. How do we make conversations around the commons and commoning more inclusive to include a, a real reckoning with the realities that we have to come out of in order to make these opportunities really like prosper. Because I find that very frustrating. You know, like you, you actually in the book did a really good job, I thought, of including resources that speak to some of this specifically. 
right? And I'm not going to give the whole book away, right? I want people to get the book. But um, you talk about feminist movements. You talk about the racial constructs around commenting. But to be honest, between me and you and the thousands of people that will be listening to this, I don't see that very often, right? And I'll, what I will look out and see is a lot of gatherings, a lot of like institutes and stuff. And then I'll click on the website or look at their papers and I just see white faces. You know, they'll quote black shit or indigenous shit. And, and that's super frustrating, right? Because I'm like, we're here, but not involved. Well, you know, you ask an excellent question because this is a frontier. However, I think there are lots of uh, really interesting collaborations across sectors, across race, across gender. We see, for example, the water protectors movement against the pipeline, which brought you know military veterans and indigenous people together. Who would have thought? And I know that a lot of people in digital spaces are saying, you know, the Silicon Valley model for governance of digital communities, feminist economics answers a lot of these questions by dealing with relationality and care in a way that, you know, masters of the universe don't think about. And so I think it's partly the discourse of the commons by showing the kinship across sectors opens up some new wormholes. Uh, new spaces for different types of conversation to occur. You know, Sylvia Federici, the feminist uh, scholar of care, is uh, just this brilliant pioneer of that topic. And it just, she's been working on it for decades, but it's now radiating out to show that it has far more applicability than households and feminist concerns. So I'm hoping that the discourse of the commons and its framing by having being so broad, by being so open-ended, by acknowledging that there are multiple worlds, a pluriverse, as opposed to a one world that the capitalist system asserts, that it can validate these different ways of being and knowing. And once you start to get there, you start to groove on that difference and not consider it a threat to the tribe. And, you, you know, I think that's where we need to go. And I, I agree. And I think the reason why I'm, I'm being so steadfast on the point is that I think what we, what we see happen in these kind of cyclical movements is that there is some progress. Then we have like a retrenchment, right? So we already talked about Black Lives Matter and George Floyd. We'll just use that as a pinpoint, right? The New York Times bestseller lists were exploding with the anti-racist books. And now we're two years away. And I think we're seeing incredible backlash to that, whether it's this, you know, and, and some of it is legislative backlash, right? And and others of it is cultural backlash, right? So like you said, we're telling stories. And so now it's become oh, well, culture is terrible and we're all being canceled. You know, all this sort of like bitching and moaning, which I feel is a direct reflection of that. And so when I, when I move in some of these worlds, because I'm an anthropologist, right? So this is what I do. I'll see like, and I'm not asking you to answer for anyone else's behavior, but I'm, I'm saying like, I've noticed these things. So as someone out in the space as well, I want to talk to you and get a reflection on this where 
your communities that I joined out of general interest in understanding this work. Like I'll think like P2P is a perfect example of that, that I watched this devolve into now a cesspool of libertarian and alt-right behavior, but still promoting these ideas around, we can build a better world, right? But then they're like, they hate everything. <laughs> well, I think I think you're conflating the reaction with some of these movements because mm-hmm. I think that uh, you know we can't control the entire culture, but I think that we can try to grow movements and discourses with integrity. And you're right, peer to peer has been co-opted by Silicon Valley, uh, yet there remains uh, some some very authentic and robust peer to peer movements that are not simply corporate sellouts. And I think that's part of why I'm involved in the commons is trying to give a language and articulation for what differentiates this from the the later uh, reactions or co-optation of it. Uh, You know, obviously, American culture needs to to metabolize and digest a lot of this stuff. I mean, after two centuries, we're still struggling. And, uh, you know, I wish I had a magic bullet for dealing with that. But I think uh, getting outside of the um, the corporate and state orchestrated conversations, which have, they have their own limited affordances for what they can do, the state and and markets. So I think that devising our own cultural voices and venues will be critical to sort of opening this up even further. But you know, obviously, we have a long way to go, and um, I, I think the outsider movements of the sort that the commons are will at least allow some fresh air into the conversation and some different kinds of venues than the ones we have for discussing this. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I wrote a piece a long time ago and I was like, you know, we're in a crisis of care, right? Like COVID and all of these things, yes, they are specific in their, the way they manifest, but the overall crisis is care. How do we build a society, build a world that centers that deeply. And I'm curious in in your mind, how we can not just build that part of it, which is daunting enough, but also build a space where we can have, you know, for lack of a better word, let's call it truth and reconciliation or something where we can start to have healing conversations around the past, right? Because it's it's one thing, like you said, there's water movements and people looking to protect the land, but are we giving the land back, right? Like, you know, to some extent we are, but Manhattan isn't going back to the the indigenous tribes that were here, right? So there's some limits to what we are really willing to do the general we right as a society well i mean this is why there's such reticence to talk about the past in truthful ways because it has implications for how we're going to change and some people don't want so-called critical race theory which is kind of a bogus straw man because they don't want to have that conversation and uh that's what we need to get beyond and it's tough right like how do we have like i i feel like many of us want to have that conversation right like how do we 
break through that to do it? I think that we, in a way, despite ourselves or without thinking about it, have been having those conversations. The whole George Floyd demonstrations for months were part of like, we insist upon having this conversation. And I think that many, um, many projects that are presenting themselves as commons-based are trying to cultural, self-consciously have this open space and different cultural stance as opposed to uh, I'm a, an enlightened corporation or which we know, you know they're enlightened as long as it uh, doesn't affect the bottom line too much. And so I think partly it is escaping the logic of capital-driven markets and the state system, which has its own incentives for creating social hierarchies. There's a fantastic book called Neither Native Nor Settler, which is a look at state power and how it deliberately creates discriminated against minorities because it's part of the structure of state power from Nazi Germany to the Palestinians in Israel to South Africa to Sudan to the United States and Native Americans and, and African Americans. And how in some ways you have to start to unravel state power or reconfigure it if we're going to get out of that bind. That's why, again, as a non-state cultural enterprise, the commons, I think, has potential for opening up space and negotiating with the state. We need some different structures uh, than you are providing because liberal uh, democracy law and uh, certainly not authoritarian law is not opening the space for that. I'm glad like the word law came up, right? Because you you spend some time talking about like the the legal machinations that that are kind of humming around in the background, right? And you know, I think without being too philosophical though we're always philosophical on the show, you know, what is legal isn't always justice, right? I think there, there's there's legality and there's law. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, I'm sorry. There's legality and there's legitimacy. Yeah. And the commons is about legitimacy versus legality, which is simply this is what the law says and we can enforce it as we wish. I love that train of thought, right? Because it gives us a chance to kind of pull apart some of how the way the legal systems, like these state structures, favor these ownership models, right? And and ownership models are really about, like you said, enclosure, right? Like making fences to some physical and, and some otherwise. And we all start to live and move based on those boundaries, whether we can physically see them or not, right? Just merely putting up a sign that says private property tells me not to go there, right? So I want to like start to un- think about some of that legal stuff because I want to get into a metaverse conversation, which I think is also very legal. <laughs> well, you know, the, basically I talk about within the commons world, the need to create legal hacks on the law because the law is deliberately designed to serve in the interests of capital. A great book is uh, called The Code of Capital, How, law cre- How the Law Creates Wealth and Inequality by Katarina Pistor, a Columbia law professor. But the point is, we need to overcome many of these structures of law, which are taken as normative in the default, and create workarounds. And that's what like the Creative Commons licenses do with copyright law. They make something shareable when otherwise everything is born as private property. 
and the same with the general public license that helped make uh, free and open source software. It allows the code to be shareable, even though the law doesn't make any provisions for that. This is multiplied over across many other domains where commoners are having to uh, work to decriminalize commoning, like seed sharing is a crime. Uh, And so this is part of our challenge is to deal with law. An associated part of this is to rethink property rights, which are so private and individualistic and in the service of capital accumulation Uh, In my book, Free, Fair, and Alive, we have a chapter devoted to what we call relationalized property, where people have a personal and cultural relationship with land or some other shared wealth, code, Wikipedia editors and the Wikipedia, whatever. And in other words, it's a part of them. And they have personal skin in the game in terms of uh, an involvement with stewarding that resource, which is very different from the absolute ownership of a resource that then I could sell for maximum gain, and that's what the game is. Uh, we like to, in the commons, like to talk about care wealth as a different category than a resource because it's, price is not its measure of value. It's more has more deeper meaning to me uh, as a commoner. So you know, these are the kinds of epistemological shifts, if you allow the term, that we need to make. And it's gonna. It has to be done. Moreover, not just as you know, my giving a different name or term for something, but have an experiential basis for it. And that's where commoning comes in, because people develop this different intersubjective experiences in the course of figuring out how to manage a shared shared wealth in a commons. And you know, like I said, I want to extend this out to you know the metaverse, right? Because it gives us an opportunity to. The metaverse has become my favorite example now of imagination capture, right? That, you know, we're just so much thought, right? Even in our conversation right now, we're spending time on this, right? So it's an extension of imagination capture to, you know, build something or create something or manifest something that I find wholly absurd, right? So I'm I'm editorializing my position on it. And I, I thought you made a really good point again in the book, highlighting that there's an opportunity for us to build a common verse, right? Or manifest a a common verse. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to, you know, juxtapose those, those two concepts because one of them, the metaverse being, seems to double down on all of the things that we just discussed that are problematic right? Despite the fact of them using language to the opposite. Like it's, it's stunning to me in, in ways how it's managed to brand itself as something that is um, open when it seems like it's anything but, while also being also incredibly ecologically destructive. So my editorial aside, how do you play with those two ideas? Well, I think the the so-called metaverse that uh, Meta, formerly Facebook, is trying to devise is just symptomatic of capital lunging for yet another virgin market that it can dominate. You know, we've seen how capital has patents in nanomatter, uh, trademarks in 
in words and images, even smells. You have snippets of sound or music that are two or three samples that are copyrighted. Basically, capital is trying to propertize and capture as much as they can. And if you can do that preemptively by creating a new market the way Metaverse is trying to do, while its old enterprise Facebook starts to implode, it had one of the worst uh, market setbacks and stock market setbacks recently, as as people flee Facebook, no longer wanting to be associated with it. Uh, and I think that this is what's going on there. Uh, the problem is that this it's simply kind of a, a zombie feeding off of others. Uh, it's not a source of liveliness and regenerativity uh, and authenticity. And that's what the commons verse, I think, by meeting people's real needs, uh, not as a profit-making enterprise, but as something that is serving basic needs that, uh, in a more equitable, uh, inclusive way, uh, is speaking to. Now, it remains <laughs> an open question whether the commons verse can find each, people in the different elements of it, can find each other and build it out and have a self-awareness as a cultural phenomena. But the alternative is not so appetizing as AI and other systems of, of corporate control metastasize and gain more control over everyday life. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this idea of, of finding one another, right? Like I, I tried to avoid, if I can, like the corporate language. So like, oh, things have to scale. And how do we build this at scale? You know, it's always like that, which again, in my mind, like, keeps us in a market state of being, right? Because I'm now using like market language and and all the rest of it. So I, I try to use what I call like love language, right? Like language that is using different words very specifically in contexts in which you're not used to hearing them, right? Like most people in boardrooms aren't used to hearing about imagination and magic and love and care. And so when Presented with those opportunities, I double down and try to use those words as much as possible. But it's tricky. It's <laughs> tricky. I mean, we know that Disney is the magic kingdom and so forth. You know, within those structures, those words can often simply be degraded and used mm -hmm. as marketing props. And so it's a tricky business because we need the structures and the authentic cultures to use those words in earned ways and not in bullshit ways. And, um, you know, that's that's part of the challenge is having institutional forms that can with integrity speak in that language. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, love is one of those words, right? It's can't get more commoditized as a word. It's <laughs> it's, it's everywhere to to we I mean we just at the time that we're recording this, Valentine's Day was just like Monday, right? And we're a few days away from that. Like you can't have a, a more sort of this commercialized way of, of using the word. And what I try to say is like, when I'm talking about love, it's a more community-based love. So it's not the romantic or, or sexualized way of thinking about love as much as it's the love we have between each other and the ecology and all the rest of those things. So having said that, you know, so much of, of, when I, when I read the work you've done in the commons, when I think about the statements that we've just said, a lot of this is based on feeling, right? Like there's a lot of, I know how 
capitalism makes me feel, right? Like we talked about that at the very beginning. There's the the stresses and all of the pressure and just you might live in it, but you don't feel that great about it. And the the structure <laughs> the structuring of desire through consumerism, and then it has to come again, again, again. Well, anyways, we know that we know these pathologies. It's a it's a feedback loop, right? So, you know, but we don't frame it like that. So when we're trying to make sense of the world and the possibilities in the world, and so much of them are based on how we feel, but the resources tend to go to things that are measured, right? <laughs> so how do we balance that, right? I, I use like forest analogies, right? I look, somebody will look at a forest and see just the sum of its parts, right? It's timber or it's paper. And the rest of us could potentially see that as something beyond measure, right? Well, I think that you're absolutely right. The commons is about affect, affective relationships, and that's the glue of it. And I think there's an implicit gravitational pull of human beings want to be together. They want, they're social. That said, I think that we, our stories don't allow us to acknowledge that. We still see the universe as a collection of objects. And, you know, that's why I'm fascinated by the rise of the so-called new animism, which is a number of cultural theorists and even evolutionary scientists who are saying the world is profoundly alive and interconnected the way indigenous peoples understood it. We just are not clued in. I mean, if you read something like um, Merlin Sheldrake's book on entangled life about mushrooms, mycelium, and, and the rest, that illuminates in such a vivid way how these mysterious interconnections are what sustain life. And that's a fantastic metaphor for what goes on in the commons. It, it reminds me also of Joseph Campbell's line, we don't understand our invisible means of support. And... Um, that's what we need to clue into and and see that it does have more potency than we realize, more human satisfactions, certainly more than the dreams that capitalism peddles to us. Absolutely. And, and, I'll, and I'll give a shout out to Susan Samard, who does a lot of um, work in this space as well. Um, only because I Melvin wasn't able to be on my show, so he gets less he gets less of a shout out, and she gets more of a shout out because she has agreed to come on the deep dive. <laughs> so selfishly, I'm going to point people in her direction rather than his. Though his that's book your, that's your job. You no, should. no, I've 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 heard amazing things about his book. In all honesty, and that and that's why I reached out to him to be on the show actually, um, because I want to talk to anyone and everybody who's out here promoting these ideas. So I said at the beginning that I'm not one for optimism versus not, but I am aware of cynicism, you know, and, and cynicism is, is one of these things that I, that I find like we have to be on guard against. Right. So in your work, you're, you're doing so much. How do you avoid the cynicism? Well, it's because I'm constantly trafficking with people who are struggling hard and often succeeding with what others would regard as utopian visions. So it's, I don't even have to struggle with that. And I think that because cynicism comes when you don't have a credible pathway or story forward, and all you can do is protectively, defensively 
turn inward and put a hard shell on yourself. But commoners are among the most uh, porous, vulnerable, open people because they're collaborating with each other on these seemingly impossible or counterintuitive projects. So that's a great source of inspiration. So I don't want to say maybe optimism is a little too uh, flat of a word or too broad of a word, but I guess there's just a liveliness and joy that I encounter among so many different commons projects that uh, how could I not be nourished by that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to get us out on this before we go to off the dome and, and the drop. You know, co-option is is also another thing that I'm very always on the lookout for, right? And, you know, how do we continue to lay deeper work, deeper, you know, deeper connections to, you know, hoard off the co-option of these, of these spaces and ideas, you know, particularly as they emerge and reemerge, because as you said, many of many of these ideas have existed in indigenous cultures and other cultures for thousands of years, right? Millennia. And we're rediscovering what we've known, right? So as we continue that cycle of emerging, keeping this stuff from being co-opted before it can even fully make itself become what it's going to be. Well, I think that that's always the danger and there will be co-optation. I think there's a couple of protections we have. One, we're self-conscious about the need to devise the legal, the technological, the social defenses against co-optation and enclosure. Uh, that's part of the hardiness of a commons that functions. It has those preemptive mechanisms built in. Second, the commons is not necessarily a noun. That's sort of the old way of talking about it. It's really commoning the verb. It's pretty hard to co-op the verb. Are you doing that? If you're not doing it, you're not commenting, you know? And so it's it's a little bit built in with a little bit more ability to sort of uh, debunk somebody claiming to be a commons. Now, obviously the word commons is used in all sorts of retrograde ways on apartment buildings or by companies that wanna have an egalitarian spin on their identity and so forth. We're not gonna be able to prevent that, but I think to the extent that we can have enough actual projects with cohesion, visibility, and cooperation among each other, you can have a cultural sense of this is for real, and that's really the pretender. And, uh, you know, you can't get obsessed too much about that. But um, in, 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 in some ways, you could say that attempted co-optation is a sign of your success because you've got the juice, you've got the legitimacy, you're doing stuff that others wish they could do but can't. So, you know, it's a complicated response, but uh, we should only wish that uh, more people would want to co-opt the commons. Let's just be prepared for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a perfect way to think about it. I, I love that spin, actually. I hadn't really gone there. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit too feisty. I got a little bit of Brooklyn in me. I, it was like, it, it's very much a hip hop thing, right? Like if you were young in the game and someone tried to steal what you were doing, that was like a cardinal sin. Now it doesn't matter as much. But in the early stages of hip hop, biting was like your cardinal cardinal crime. Right. So mm. I think I view co-option like that, right? It's still I'm still 17 years old running. Well, the it's the ultimate flattery <laughs> in, in some ways. And uh 
yeah, it, it's in some ways it's pathetic to cling to private property when we're all mutually embedded in each other. Yeah. And, you know, we somehow need to acknowledge that and find the structures to to live with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's get into off the dome where just some some rapid fire questions. There's three of them, you know, and and over the, the holiday, I watched um, Don't Look Up, which I thought was a, a very prescient documentary <laughs> on, <laughs> on the on the world we live in. It was poignant and funny and all those good things. So I want to ask you for the first off the dome question. What's a movie that you've engaged with that really made you laugh or feel good? Doesn't have to be recent, but what's one of your go-to movies? Movie, movie or, seri- or series? You know what? I'll open it up. Either or. Well, I mean, I've just finished watching uh, Station Eleven, the the uh, post pandemic life that people are reconstructing after most ninety nine percent of the population has been decimated within a few days. It's a fantastic testament to not to sadness or all these lurid sci fi kind of themes, but to uh, social trust and creativity and improvisation and and art, and art as a source of renewal of in people's lives, because it, it focuses on this traveling uh, performance troupe who, in these isolated villages that are left after the pandemic has destroyed civilization, are enraptured by live performance and art and Shakespeare. It's like, wow. And, and this is not, this is a very authentic series too, in the sense that uh, I'd say emotionally authentic. So I found it just a, a fantastic show. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that because I I finished it about ten days ago, maybe a little bit more, and I was able to watch it um, in bits and pieces because I didn't watch it when it was first coming out. So I was able to do it on my own pace, and I had to take like a couple of days breaks between certain certain episodes. So I agree with you. I think it's a, a wonderful show for all the reasons that you said. We'd have to do a whole another episode on, <laughs> on, on that on that show. So we're going to kind of keep that beat going with with question number two. What fictional slash make believe world would you want to live in if you could choose one? And that could come from anywhere, obviously. I don't know. I I, I don't read enough sci-fi to have a good answer for that. Uh, you know, I'm, well, it doesn't have to come from sci-fi, right? Well, sci-fi or fantasy, fantasy. Uh, boy, you, you're almost stumping me on this, except that uh, I guess uh, the obvious answer might be uh, some of the early Robin Hood legends in okay. the sense that uh, there's this uh, merry band of outsiders taking from the rich and sustaining themselves with, with pleasure and, and satisfaction and sufficiency. That's a good one, right? Like the stories come from everywhere once we start thinking about it, right? <laughs> like, oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and and this is my last one, and then we're gonna get to the drop. Even though this episode has been filled with good drops, but we're gonna specifically have have that section. Um, if you can only keep one appliance in your house, what would that appliance be? Well, I'd I'd probably have to say my computer, but with regret. Uh, in in other words, it's not it's more stimulating and and intellectual than deeply nourishing for me. So I, I I'd say that regretfully, but I would otherwise I think simply say 
um, my bathtub because I find baths to be a very soothing recentering of myself. That's a good one. That's a good one. I, I, I try not, never to have an answer, but I, even as I wrote the question out, I was like, ah, this is a tough one because I'm, I'm stuck between like refrigerator and air conditioner. Because New York gets hot, man, and I hate being hot. I'm like, I don't know what I want to do with an air conditioner. I know they're, they're shit for the environment, but yo, New York in the right. summer is terrible. I'm sure. <laughs> so, so thanks for that. And we're going to get to the drop. And, and the drop is obviously an opportunity for us to share anything at all with our listeners that we think could be of interest to them. Serious, fun, doesn't really matter. And so my drop is a book called The Essential Agrarian Handbook. And it's it's edited by Norman Wiersba, who he's at Duke in their theology department. I actually had the the pleasure of of interviewing Norman for the deep dive so people can check out that episode. But I actually read the book prior to interviewing him because I really loved his work. And I, I always say for a city kid, grew up in Brooklyn all my life, like going through the essays in the agrarian handbook gave me these like aspirations to like just farm something that I know nothing about. And again, this is a point of great great derision in my home, but um, it's put all these ideas and fantasies of, in my mind about like having a simpler life closer to the earth. So the the book is called The Essential Agrarian Handbook and is a collection of essays edited by Norman Wiersba. Fantastic. I'm going to have to chase it down. Well, I, I have a book that really uh, ambushed me when I read it. It was recommended by a friend, eco-philosopher, um, eco-philosopher eco friend of mine, Andreas Weber, but uh, he, he's into basically a reinterpretation of Darwin and, and uh, evil, the story of evolution as one of, in which feelings and uh, our, inter, our sensual interactions with the, uh, each other are part of the evolutionary story and not epiphenomena. And uh, he wrote the book, Biology of Wonder, among other things. Anyways, he recommended the book that I'll mention, which I found so fantastic, called How Forests Think Toward an Anthropology Beyond the Human. And it looks at some uh, Amazonian tribes, how they are so integrated with the, um, the forest, the jungle, that everything has personality. And it's all beyond language. And in some ways, all the species are, quote, thinking together uh, in, in creative ways. It's just not necessarily represented in words or language. And they're in, embedded in this thinking forest. And it just jolted me into understanding that our human identities are kind of this fragile construct in which we don't know the half of it in terms of how deeply embedded we are in natural systems. So I recommend How Forests Think by Eduardo Cohn, K-O-H-N. Awesome. That sounds like a good one and adding it to the list. <laughs> <laughs> the list continues to grow. It shall never, ever cease. David, I, I want to thank you so much for, for joining me on, on a deep dive. This was a, a great conversation as I suspected that it would be, and I'm, I'm hoping it won't be the last. I'm hoping this opens up the doors to many, many other conversations. Well, Philip, I've enjoyed this a lot. Thank you. Thank you. 
You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.